This morning's reading can be found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, on page 1005 in the Church Bibles. 1005. Mark, chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 20. Jesus and Beelzebub. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, on Sunday mornings, we're going through Mark's Gospel. And so far, we've had Jesus' baptism and the voice from heaven declaring, This is my son, all done in public before a large crowd. We've had Jesus performing miracles Um, over nature, over sickness and over evil. We've had Jesus teaching to astonished crowds as he spoke on his own authority. And by now, tens of thousands of people have encountered the phenomenon, which was Jesus of Nazareth, exploding onto the scene, making an astonishing impact. Now, he's done enough so far for people to start evaluating him, starting to make their assessment of him. They will have seen, of course, nothing like this in their lifetime. Only if they're familiar with their history would they have anything in any way that is comparable. They'd have to go back to the days of the prophets Elisha and Elijah, for example, or to Moses when the the miraculous ten plagues enabled them to be uh, the people liberated from slavery in Egypt. Only those kinds of things um, would be comparable to what Jesus was doing amongst the people. And various different groups start their assessment process. Today we see his family making an assessment of him. We see the religious leaders We don't see the ordinary people, but they too must have been making their assessment. And we can take the opportunity as we look at this to make our assessment of Jesus. 
So first of all, the first assessment is his family. And they think, verses 20, 21, that he is out of his mind. Now the inclusion of this incident, incidentally, speaks volumes for Mark's honesty and integrity. I mean, he doesn't have to include it, does he? But he does. And the early church would never have made this up. It is a classic own goal in some ways. It is an embarrassment. But he records it. See, what we have here is Jesus' family, the people that he'd grown up with, concerned enough to come all the way from Nazareth, which is a 30-mile walk, to uh, the Sea of Galilee. And they've come because they're very concerned about what their family member is getting himself up to. I mean, we don't know whether what they've heard was accurate or not, but they'd certainly heard something of the commotion that he was causing. He was really making waves throughout the country. Now, of course, some of the things they would have heard that he was doing would have been outside of their frame of reference. You know, it was not something they would encounter in normal life. It was outside the box, if you like. It would have sounded puzzling, what they were hearing. Bizarre, even. And on top of that, they were probably aware that not only was he attracting huge crowds of ordinary people, but that the religious establishment was getting interested and curious. What is this guy? What kind of threat is he posing to our kind of religious monopoly? And they doubtless feared that perhaps the next step would be for the Roman authorities, who could take some very drastic action against their family member Jesus if they thought he was some kind of threat to their rule and to the peace of their province. And so they think Jesus is getting out of his depth, that he's getting into trouble. And so we read that they went to take charge of him. It's a word <coughs> used elsewhere of arresting someone or taking control of someone. Well, maybe at this point you're getting the picture that uh, somebody, Jesus is in the category of somebody who's had a sort of psychotic episode displaying bizarre behaviour, talking complete and utter rubbish. And um, so sometimes people call the police. They'll, of course, call the psychiatric community uh, nurse or the psychiatric social worker. And the poor person, unless they can be talked into some kind of reason, will be sectioned under the Mental Health Act for their own protection so that they can be treated. But that would be to go too far, because there's no evidence to suggest that Jesus was in any way mentally ill. I mean, you can, of course, visit any psychiatric facility today and be introduced to people who think that they're Julius Caesar or Napoleon or even Jesus Christ. And we might think, if Jesus is making these claims, albeit indirectly, but pretty obviously that... Uh, you know, he is divine and he's acting in this way. Could he be deluded if he really believed he was God? You know, can we determine whether he was insane or not? Well, Gary Collins, who's a psychologist with a doctorate in clinical psychology, says this, disturbed individuals often show signs of depression or anxiety or explosive anger, 
but Jesus never displays inappropriate emotions. He does get angry, he says, but this is clearly appropriate. In the temple, for instance, when he saw the misuse of the temple courtyard and that the money changers were taking advantage of the poor, he didn't just get you know, hacked off because someone was annoying him. In fact, Jesus seems at his most composed, he says, when being challenged. And he has a rather beautiful passage where he describes Jesus like this. He says, Jesus was loving, but he didn't let his compassion immobilize him. He didn't have a bloated ego, even though he was often surrounded by adoring crowds. He maintained balance despite an often demanding lifestyle. He always knew what he was doing and where he was going. He cared deeply about people, including women and children, who weren't seen as being important back then. He was able to accept people while not merely winking at their sin. He responded to individuals based on where they were at and what they uniquely needed. All in all, he concludes, I just don't see signs that Jesus was suffering from any known mental illness. That's his family. What do the teachers of the law think? Verse 22, they've come down from Jerusalem to make their assessment and to report back. And they conclude that Jesus is evil. Now there's no doubt that the only Jesus in the ancient world for which there's evidence is one who went around performing miracles. That's what he had a reputation for. And we've so far seen him instantly and completely heal a man with leprosy. That would involve immediate restoration of the man's skin and limbs to complete health, disfigurement removed before their very eyes. We've seen Jesus healing somebody who was a paralytic. I mean, think of somebody that you know who might, for example, suffer significantly from cerebral palsy. Maybe they were deprived of oxygen when they were born, and they have always walked and moved and spoken awkwardly. And then along comes Jesus and sorts them all out in an instant so that they are just like you. They walk completely normally. They speak completely clearly. What would you make of it? There is no human explanation. There wasn't then, and there wouldn't be today. It is a supernatural event, not just a supernatural event, but a miraculous event. It's clearly not a trick. C.S. Lewis, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So, there are two options which these uh, scribes and teachers of the law are having to consider. They can think, on the one hand, this guy is doing good deeds, they are clearly miraculous, they must therefore come from a benign supernatural source, which means God is behind them. 
Or there's another option, which they might be tempted to take because they resist submitting to the authority of this person who is doing things they have never seen in their lives before and clearly teaches with a sense of authority. And they don't want to admit that. So what's their avenue of getting out of it? Well, their option is to concur. That is a good deed. It is a miracle. But they choose to ascribe it to a malevolent supernatural force. They ascribe it to the devil and the forces of evil. This is what the scribes and teachers of the law who come down from Jerusalem to suss out Jesus opted to do. Galilee is about a hundred miles from Jerusalem and this Nazarene has created such a stir as to attract the interest of the religious establishment in the capital. They have come to investigate and then they're to report back to their masters. And they conclude, verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Well, whether it's Beelzebub or as the footnote suggests, Beelzebul, Beelzebul is slightly more preferable because that means Lord of the dwelling and it ties in with some of the other passages in the Gospels. Now, Beelzebul in religious, in Jewish literature is never used for Satan. The thought is more of some kind of prince of demons who operates on Satan's behalf and that that demon has got control of Jesus who is now driving out little demons all over the place. Well, it's pretty perverse, isn't it? You know, you make that option when the other option stares you in the face as being obviously right. But they conclude that his ability to do these miracles, which are all good for people, are due to malevolent forces rather than benevolent forces. They put it down to the devil rather than God. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult for Jesus to expose their thinking as nonsense. He argues in verses 23 to 27, and I'm paraphrasing the passage. Imagine him talking to them. If I'm really casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, then Satan must be casting out Satan. But how can Satan do that? It's absurd. A household divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan has really risen up against himself and is divided, then he can't stand. He's finished. But obviously that's not the case because Satan still seems strong. Therefore to suggest that I cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons must be false. A quite different conclusion should have been drawn. You should have realised that no one can enter a strong man's house and steal his goods unless he first ties up the strong man. Only when he's done that will he be able to make off with the valuables. The right conclusion to be drawn from the fact that I cast out demons is that a stronger one than Satan has come and bound him. You see, if Jesus is freeing people who are trapped by Satan, then he has already bound him. Now, Jesus did defeat him in the wilderness. There was a battle, the battle of temptation, if you like, and he defeated. He did not succumb to the devil's temptation. But the devil isn't finished. He's still 
working. He's still strong. He's still attacking God's plans and purposes. He wants to retain as many people as possible who live in his dark world. He doesn't want them to be liberated by being enlightened, by having their debt of sin paid for them. You see, even after Jesus scored further victories, and even when he died on the cross, rose again and ascended to heaven, Satan is still active. He's almost like those Hitler youth in the last days of the war, sniping as allied forces advance, killing a handful of soldiers and then standing up and surrendering. You know, they're just trying to stop the inevitable. The advancing army will get to Berlin. The war will end. And so with Christ. There will be a day of his return. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of glorious recreation. But until then, the devil's still active. Verses 28 and 29 have worried a lot of Christians down the ages. I tell you the truth, which is a very emphatic way in which Jesus says, um, effectively, it's as as commanding as... um, in the Old Testament where you have the Lord has said, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. Well, have you ever worried whether you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Well, as they say, if you worry about it, you haven't committed it. Because this saying of Jesus was directed at those representatives of the Sanhedrin who were unwilling and so unable to recognise who Jesus says he is due to what's called in 3, 5 and 8, 17, their hardness of heart. They so resist Jesus, they don't even see the need to repent and be forgiven. They see Jesus performing miracles of healing, controlling nature, exercising authority over forces of evil, and yet rather than recognise and submit to the obvious, they are so perverse as to ascribe all that he's done to demonic forces. That being the case, they will not be able to take the necessary action to ensure their escape from darkness. They'll not be able to do an about turn to recognise Jesus for who he is, their only hope of rescue and of heaven. They've had it. They have rejected the Lord of life. So, so far we've seen that Jesus is not out of his mind. There's no evidence for mental illness in him. Jesus is not an agent of the devil. He's in fact greater than the forces of evil who because Christ has come to earth, have come to the fore in a visual way so that we can all see the spiritual reality that we can't otherwise see. He is a benevolent, supernatural visitor. And then fourthly here, we find that this Jesus thinks obedience to God takes priority over family relationships, 31 to 35. Now Mary, Jesus' mother, is mentioned, but Joseph, her husband, is not. Assuming that that Joseph was perhaps around 20 when Jesus was born, he'd now be around 50. 
and I guess 50 for a carpenter doing manual work in those days would be quite exceptional to reach. It's speculation, but the silence might be indicative that Joseph had already died. It's, of course, an interesting question to think about whether Jesus is, how much Jesus' brothers knew. I mean, did they know that Jesus was conceived of a virgin, that Joseph wasn't his biological father? I mean, did Mary and Joseph talk to them about it? Well, we can't be sure, can we? But the stigma of illegitimacy in those days in that culture may suggest that perhaps they had not. And interestingly, Luke says in his infancy narratives, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, he talks about Mary when she's been spoken to by the angel, that she pondered these things in her heart. Well, I wonder whether when she started sharing them it might be that she only shared them when she'd seen the whole course of Jesus' life, realised then the full implications of what she'd been told at the time of, her con of his conception, that then she then shared it with Luke and he recorded those things in his Gospel. Speculation, but it has a sense of plausibility about it. So in the eyes of his younger brothers, Jesus would seem to have been thought of, possibly, as an exceptional member of the family. He was clearly very knowledgeable and he was clearly intelligent. You get that from the episode in Luke's Gospel when Jesus is 12 and the kind of questions and the kind of people that he's engaging with. They were probably unaware of the real significance of Jesus. Even Mary, who had been spoken to by the angels and who had experienced parthenogenesis, which is birth by a virgin, was probably not clear of how, as to how it was all going to work out. So we read, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your, mothers, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? It seems a bit insensitive. Is it? In verse 21, we read that his, what, that his family thought that he was out of his mind. In John 7, 5, we read that his brothers didn't believe in him. But once again, just as it is now time for a new people of God, that's why Jesus has appointed 12 disciples, those 12 disciples will form the foundation of the new people of God, just as the 12 sons of Joseph form the foundation of the people of Israel. So too it's time for a new family of God, a family that you couldn't be born into, but one you could only be born again into, to use one of the popular analogies in the New Testament. 
or you can talk in terms of being adopted into a new family. And that goes as much for Jesus' blood relatives as it does for anyone. Now, interestingly, the history of the early church suggests that Jesus' mother and his brother James were significant figures in the early church. They were believers that Jesus Christ, their blood relative, was in fact God on earth amongst them. But they were there not because they were blood-related, but because they were blood-bought. Now there's an enormous stress in the Gospels about obedience to Jesus, <coughs> obedience to God. It's through recognising that Jesus has authority over us that we enter into his family. His authority determines what is right and what is wrong. And we acknowledge and repent of our sins against him. And he grants us forgiveness and adoption into his family. So let's try and play out and see how this might apply. So first of all, there are two things on the outline. The first is, what is your assessment of Jesus? Was he out of his mind? Was he demonic? Was he God on earth? C.S. Lewis again spells out your options very clearly. He says, in mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And secondly, how might we work out this tension between divine loyalty with family loyalty? So, for example, what do you do if you're not yet a Christian and you're convinced that what you know of Jesus is true and yet you're worried what your family would think if you did become a Christian? Well, the question you have to answer to yourself is whether it's true or not. If it is true, then you have to go with it, and the truth will take care of the consequences. Or if you like to think pragmatically, who is it better to be in with in the long run, the eternal God or mortal man? Well, what about how you spend your time if your spouse is not yet a believer? As Christians, we are commanded to uh, meet together, to pray, to study the Bible, and we're commanded to be a witness. We should not be forbidden from doing such things. But how, when, where, 
and how publicly we do them requires discernment and wisdom. Well, what about some big issues? There are certain moral issues which Christians are commanded to take a particular line on. They are often countercultural to Western values. They will bring us into tension with others who don't share our Christian worldview. So how do we handle them? Well, issues fall into different categories. There are first-order issues which, if we disobey them persistently, will affect adversely our salvation. There are second-order issues which may be, if we don't obey them, a disobedience, but which don't necessarily affect our salvation. And there are third- or fourth-order issues which are things indifferent, where we have liberty to choose what to do. Well, let's try and think about an issue where we will not only be required to think out the biblical position, but also to act on it, and to act on it quite publicly. So let's take the issue of marriage and consider a number of possible scenarios and how we might act. Let's think about what we would do if we were given six wedding invitations in the coming year to six different kinds of situation. And I'm assuming that a wedding is a celebratory event and that our attendance implies participation, at least to some extent, and therefore implicitly our approval of the actual marriage. So let's take half a dozen of them, uh, six of them. Uh, first of all, a family member who's not a Christian is marrying a Hindu in a temple. Do you go or don't you? Do you accept the invitation or not? Well, marriage is a creation ordinance. God wants marriage for all people of all religions and none. So it would be perfectly in order to go and celebrate this couple getting married. Now, of course, it's in a Hindu temple. There may well be certain religious um, uh, aspects to the ceremony and we would not participate in them because they may well be in conflict with our Christian faith, such as making offerings to some kind of idol. But we nonetheless go, but we wouldn't participate in that part. Second invitation. What if a nephew who's not a Christian invites you to his wedding to another non-Christian? Would you go or would you not? Well, again, marriage is a creation ordinance and we should celebrate the fact that these two people wish to be married as God intended, even though, of course, at that particular point in time they don't acknowledge that God is the source of marriage. He invented it. It's what he intended. The third invitation comes in, what if a Christian member of your family has chosen to marry a non-Christian? That's much more tricky. The Apostle Paul very clearly forbids believers from marrying non-believers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, he writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which is traditionally taken to understood to apply to marriage. And in Old Testament times, the people of God were forbidden from taking foreign brides because the Lord said they would be seduced by those wives away from him, as indeed the history of the people of Israel reveals that it did. However, it's not a first-order issue. Christians wouldn't lose their salvation from doing so, 
but it is nonetheless a public act of disobedience. What do you do if you, for example, are a Christian parent? Well, I'm sure you'd be very disappointed. I'm sure you would worry as to where it was all going to lead. But I think, given that it isn't a first-order issue, that you probably would and should attend to maintain family relationships. A fourth invitation, what would you do if you were invited to a wedding by a brother who had committed adultery and was now marrying the woman he had had an affair with? Would you go or would you not? What do you think the wife and the children that he would have left would think if you did attend his wedding? It is a first order issue. It's one in a list that, gee, that is made in the New Testament where people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven if they persist in that. I think going to a wedding in such a situation would indicate that we are endorsing his behaviour when clearly we shouldn't. And what if the fifth invitation, a year or two later, his ex-wife invites you to join her and your nephew and nieces to celebrate her marriage to her new husband. Would you go or would you not? Well, if you honestly think the Bible does permit divorce and remarriage to the innocent party to adultery, Matthew 19:9, then we should go. And sixthly, a sixth invitation, what if a niece or a son invited you to their same-sex marriage in a registry office? Would you go or wouldn't you go? Well, that's a first-order issue as well, one we should not condone, but which our presence at such an occasion would do so. I don't think I'd be able to go. You see, following Christ does involve obedience. Obedience not just in our head, in our private life, but in our public life too. You see, such acts, whatever they are, every time we have to make them, will either strengthen our faith or weaken it. Either we will display counter a counter-cultural way of living, or we will display a way in which we are accommodating to our cultural norm. You see, it can be tough being a Christian. It involves doing God's will over everything else, even family. Let's pray. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and grace to use aright the time that's left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done. And strengthen us to follow in the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.